Will you pray with me, please? Gracious and loving God, I ask that you would illumine these words and meditations with your light for the support and the strengthening of all who are gathered here this morning. Amen. You've probably heard by now that the students who were pepper sprayed last November 18th have settled with the University of California for about $30,000 each. Many of the students are saying they will use the money to pay their college tuition. Some who have already graduated say they will use the money to get on with their lives. Chancellor Katehi will also write a personal apology to each student who was pepper sprayed, something she offered to do in person on Sunday, November 20th, two days after the pepper spraying. The day after I mediated between Chancellor Katehi and students, I was called and asked to relay that message that she was willing to meet with each student in person and apologize. I was asked to relay that message to students. And at the time, the, the student I spoke with, on behalf of the other students, refused to sit with her individually to accept a face-to-face apology. They felt it wouldn't right the wrong, The wrong, as they described it, was the system that lured students to higher education with the threat that without a degree, they would have limited prospects for financial security, then once in the system, saddled them with crushing debt and rising fees. The wrong, as they saw it, was a growing privatization of what should be a publicly guarded and supported good for the benefit of all people. And so, now, in the wake of the settlement, many are asking, is this justice? Was a wrong righted? Our scripture today comes from the book of Esther, which has long been one of my favorites with its twists and intrigue, the strong female heroines of Esther and the appropriately defiant Queen Vashti. This story is one that has great resonance for many gay and lesbian persons as we make choices every day about how open to be about sexual identity, similar to Esther's choice to keep her identity as a Jew involved a complex and ongoing calculation about survival safety, access to power, and the ability to make a difference. The story of Esther is a story that is lifted up in Jewish tradition. Each year in the festival of Purim, told in dramatic fashion where Esther and her cousin Mordecai are cheered, and Haman, the villain, is jeered. It's a story that has, as one of its primary messages... When Haman himself is hanged on the gallows he built to murder another, justice has prevailed. A wrong has been righted. The story goes like this. King Ahasuerus, who is generally identified as Xerxes I of Persia, in the third year of his reign threw a party for all the leaders in his vast realm which included 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. 
After a week of drinking and reveling, he called for his then wife, Queen Vashti, to present herself before the party of all of his drunken male friends and colleagues. Vashti, who was entertaining the women, refused to come. Well, this embarrassed the king, and on the advice of his friends, he banishes Vashti from his presence from that moment on and begins to search for a new queen. He chooses Esther, and her cousin Mordecai cautions her to keep her identity as a Jew a secret. Time passes, and a man, an arrogant and power-hungry man named Haman, becomes powerful in the king's court. He issues a decree that all should bow down to his name, and everyone does except Esther's cousin Mordecai. In keeping with Jewish law that forbids having any other god before Yahweh, Mordecai will not bow down. When Haman learns of this, he is enraged, and he goes to the king, telling him that there is a strange people living amongst his provinces. They have strange customs, and they will give allegiance only to their own king. He asks Ahasuerus to have them all murdered, which the king assents to, issuing a decree in all of his provinces that every man, woman, boy, girl, and baby of Jewish descent should be killed. Mordecai contacts Esther and tells her she must come out of the closet with the king in order to save the Jewish people. This is about where we, we pick up the story in our scripture that Celeste read this morning At a private dinner with only the king, Esther, and Haman, Esther devises a plan to expose that Haman has planned the genocide of the Jews and that she herself is Jewish. When the king learns of this, he's enraged, and he orders Haman's death on the same gallows that he built for Mordecai. It's supposed to be a happy ending, a triumph for Esther, highlighting her courage and her faithfulness. As I said, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and and the words, who knows, maybe you have come to power for such a time as this, are of the most compelling words in all of Scripture. But this time, when Esther turned out to be the lectionary text for this morning, and I read it in preparation, I could only wonder about the absence of mercy in this story. Would the story have been just as powerful if Haman had been pardoned? In our society today, our ideas of what constitutes justice, forgiveness, and mercy are diverse, and the situations we face are complex. We are facing in November Proposition 34, which would abolish the death penalty in California. We call for the resignation of leaders who have made mistakes, willfully or not, that have caused harm to others. And we still have tens of thousands of American soldiers in Afghanistan as we try to right the wrongs of 9-11 and support a way of life that ensures civil liberties and human dignity for all people. Many of us have our opinions about these things, but we have, have we come to these leanings through the lens of our faith? We have the witness of the book of Esther, but we also have the call from Jesus to not repay an eye for an eye 
and the Matthean Beatitudes that extol the meek, the merciful, and the peacemakers. I'll never forget when I, as a young pastor of 26, asked my adult Sunday school class about the death penalty, assuming that they would all believe similarly to what I believed, that to take a life was wrong under any circumstances. To my astonishment, to a person, they supported the death penalty and had very well-reasoned arguments for why they did so. These were persons I considered and still do consider to be deeply faithful. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and Nazi resistor who is commemorated by the United Methodist Church as a Christian martyr, coined the term cheap grace, which he described as preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. These are words that had been tested in the fire as Bonhoeffer's early pacifism and moral denouncements of Hitler and Nazi Germany gave way to active resistance through his acting as a double agent in the German secret service, shuttling Jews out of Germany. It was this act of resistance that led to Bonhoeffer's imprisonment and eventual death. In his writings, The Cost of Discipleship, and his letters and papers from prison, he gave us, I think, one of the most nuanced and wise insights into what justice and mercy are for a Christian, and they center on the meaning and the symbol of the cross. In talking about cheap grace... Let us make no mistake. Grace is always free and always present. As United Methodists, we believe that grace is the unearned, surrounding love of God that pulls us always toward goodness. It's why we baptize infants, because we are only acknowledging that God has already acted to make the baby whole, precious, beloved, and surrounded by grace. And there is a no, there's nothing a person needs to do to be a child of God. But Bonhoeffer's idea of cheap grace cautions us not to forget the promises we make in our baptism to guide, to disciple the one being baptized, and to be attentive to our own discipleship and commitments, actively living the life of a Christian. In Bonhoeffer's teaching, we are reminded reminded that faith is a dialectic, a relationship where we are always responsible to act morally and with integrity in conversation with God and in relationship with others. And so when we think of justice and mercy, it is in the light of our own responsibility to be engaged with the God of the cross, to be willing to die to bring about the reign of the kingdom of God where prevails. As Bonhoeffer put it, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. To be a Christian does not mean to be religious in, in, in a particular way, to make something of oneself, a sinner, a penitent, or a saint, on the basis of some method or other, but to be a human, not a type of human, 
but the human that Christ creates in us. It is not the religious act that makes the Christian, but the participation in the sufferings of God in secular life. Now we need to be careful here as well, lest we glorify or court suffering. The value of this statement is in its acknowledgement that suffering is real and that Christians must always struggle with the symbol of the suffering servant that we have as God. In the struggle and in the acknowledgement of this reality, there is redemption. In this time of now and not yet, that we live in, the time in which Jesus incarnate is among us, but the not yet time where the world that Jesus showed us, where peace and justice reign, is not yet with us. In this time of now and not yet, we suffer and others suffer. And as we live the truth that there is no way around suffering, only a way through We are assured that God is in that journey with us and most fully in the desolate middle where justice and mercy are both but hopes and kindness seems far away. While the belief may be widespread that retribution and violence are appropriate responses to violence and may be held among persons of a variety of religious beliefs, Christians are called continually to take a different approach to the matter. Our God is a God who chose not to fight back, even to death on a cross. To respond to his accusers and persecutors with violence would nullify the kind of witness Jesus was making and the kind of world he hoped to usher in. He chose, instead, to be with those who suffer And in his willingness to do this, the world has been inspired collectively to seek more justice and seek more mercy. And so what are we left with when we ask questions about justice after learning of the pepper spray settlement or at the end of the book of Esther? Bonhoeffer wrote, We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. We are called to be brave and kind. We are called to be just and merciful. We are called to follow Jesus. Amen.